Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Because you are all such lovely people, very many of you very frequently ask me, is there any way that we, you can support, we can support you? You do so much and we really like you. And that's lovely to hear. And very often I say, no, 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 it's fine. Just, you know, share my Instagram or share my podcast or just tell me you like me. But now there actually is something that you can do to support me. And it is to become a member of Headstuff Plus. You have often asked me if I have a Patreon account. I do not. But I do now have a Headstuff Plus account. So if you go to headstuffpodcast.com, you can become a member of the Headstuff community, which means that for five euro a month or whatever you want to donate, you can pick a podcast that you want to support. And so say it was my podcast, you would click on basically, and then I would get 100% of your donation. Or if you listen to other podcasts on our network, like um, the Dubland podcast or any of the podcasts on the network, we you could pick two of them and then we would get a 50-50 split or you could pick three and we would get 33% each. And what you get for your money is access to all of the bonus content. I will now be doing bonus content, which will be behind this, you know, this subscription wall. And you will be part of our community where you will get to know us more and you will be able to support the work that we do here. And I guess, show your appreciation for the content that we put out. Headstuffpodcast.com and become part of the community. Hello and welcome to Basically and our special Mental Health Month. Uh, Today we are speaking about something which I didn't really know was as big of an issue as it is until I spoke to Mark Smith who said that uh, eating disorders are one of the most dangerous mental health issues that people are facing at the moment and they are more prevalent than they have ever been. Um, You might have listened to that episode with Mark where he said that of anyone who presents to them with a mental health issue, someone who is suffering from anorexia um, and other eating disorders are the most likely to die. It is a really serious issue and it is one that is rampant in our communities now. Uh, And to talk to me today about this issue and other issues that coincide with it and live alongside it is Alison Keating. Alison Keating, welcome to the studio. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to let people know your expertise? Because uh, we learned in the first episode with Mark that asking uh, these clinicians what they're therapy, what their experience is and how they work is, is really important. So, 
Um, I'm a chartered psychologist. Okay. Um, nearly 20 years now. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm not a chartered psychologist 20 years, but um, my main area of interest is trauma. Okay. Um, what I've seen over the different kind of, I suppose, decades mm-hmm. is a change. You know, um, for quite some time we had just an epidemic of anxiety, um, but always it seems to kind of trickle back into trauma. Um, so my my first job was with asylum seekers, um, oh, wow. and I, I loved that work. I was very naive and was thrown into the deep end, but it was incredible work. Um, and I suppose that's really been the framework of all the work I've ever done. And I suppose specifically because it was like prisoners of war, people who've been tortured, um, that was the the kind of the, the PTSD that we all know, the kind of the post-traumatic stress disorder. But what I'm really seeing the last number of years is small T, small trauma that okay. so many people minimize. You know, they don't feel that their mental health problems are, unless they're kind of categorized under, I've been tortured at war, yes. nothing really happened to me. Um, so I just find we have a whole culture that there's so much talk about mental health and yet we're not really talking about it. That's what I feel. That yeah. Like we've come a long way in that we hear the frame that like the phrase mental health a lot now. Well, I think we're dangerously close to first of all thinking that gyms and salons are all that people need for mm. mental health because of these lockdowns and like people need this for their mental health. But also that we're talking Maybe we're more aware that we have mental health needs, but we're not actually, we kind of deny and undermine them because they're not the big, the big issues Mm. that get the headlines. Do you know what I mean? That's exactly it. And and coming from that place of people saying, oh, yes, you know, this, this person went through with a very specific trauma that we all recognize. I'm so saddened when I have people sitting in front of me and they're like, Nothing really happened to me. No big trauma happened to me. And yet they are... Traumatised. Traumatised, distressed. Their quality of life is really poor. Um, And yet I think they feel really isolated in that on the outside, kind of the social media reel, the highlights look good. Um, And there's a kind of a disconnect to that sense of private self. So it's that we all have our all had our psychological masks for a very long time. Mm-hmm. They're very obvious now, but I think the gap between our public and private is, it's so large um, and nearly like the talk is important, but what are the tools? You know, we talk about self-care nearly in a bubble bath mentality, but like what act of self-care do people really engage in in a daily level in terms of like, I call it like, you know, like your dental hygiene. We have to have the same level of mental hygiene in our brains in terms of you wouldn't go the day without brushing your teeth. But it's very clear things that I guess with dental health mm. everyone has to do the same thing. Yeah. And for mental health it's not the same for everyone and it can be really hard to know what do I need to do for myself. Do you know like because totally sometimes know. because sometimes for me self-care my 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 damaged parts tell me that self-care is lying on the couch and watching another movie. And it doesn't feel like self-care to drag myself out into the cold and mm. go for a walk. And so it's much easier for me to go, oh yeah, I know I need to brush my teeth because everyone needs to brush their teeth. And so I think it's hard for people to know what 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 does looking after myself mean? How do I parent myself? Absolutely. I think that's beautifully said because 
there isn't a one fix all solution here. And and what's really interesting is often, you know, relaxation can trigger it can induce anxiety in people where that underlying trauma is already there. So a bubble bath to one person's glorious, to another they're like sweating. Terrified. And it's like, oh God, I'm I'm having a bit of a panic attack in here. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that is exactly the how bubbles I are going to kill me. Yeah, I'm going to drown. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I, I think it's that level of and we're going to come to the eating part, but it's intuitively getting to know yourself, not being told who you are or what you should do. It's so hard. It's so hard to know yourself. And it, like one of the things that Mark said was um, in the first episode we spoke to, uh, in Mental Health Month, we spoke to Mark Smith and he was kind of a guide for me as to the, the topics that would be good to, to touch on this month. And he said that there are an increasing number of eating disorder cases that he is seeing and as when he was the head of Psychology Society of Ireland he was kind of very alarmed by it and coming back to that idea that you had there of intuition and knowing what's good for you when it comes to food and nurture because so much of what is good for us is told to us Mm. like what you should eat, what you should do, how many hours you should sleep, how many hours you should spend. And there's so many shoulds that I think intuition, well, certainly for me, has gone out the window where I'm just like, can someone please tell me? Can someone tell me if I'm hungry? Because I, I can't trust myself anymore. See, I think that's says it all. And it's that's there's two separate things here. At, at one level, I think people have lost the ability to intuitively eat because they're eating... You know, I mean, there's there's so many levels to this. You yes. know, we're 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 engineered to kind of override our eating senses in terms of the quantity of foods that are given out, the the, the psychology behind the colors. I mean, it's a huge industry. The food industry wants us to eat more and bigger and to completely override our senses <clears throat> in terms of our brain circuitry in being able to identify this. Like, if you sat down and got yourself like <laughs> a bowl of sugar and a bowl of salt. And tried to eat them. It'd be pretty tough going. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, you could do it with a box of Pringles. <laughs> yeah, of course you could. Do you know, and what happens is, you know, your your normal kind of receptors in your mouth in terms of this is too salty, this is too sweet, they get overridden, you know, so many times. And our, our brain circuitry has, I feel, been engineered and hijacked, you know, externally by kind of the big food industry at one level and all the shouting and all the noise as to... And especially this time of year, God Almighty, every. Actually, this year's been a little quieter, I think, because people know they're going to get slapped down if they start on with the dieting. I hope so. And yet you have national broadcasters doing television shows that are literally about body shaming. It's like, how is it 2020? And we are and, and we are not understanding that weight and health are not the same thing. Yes. And what you said specifically um, about... Your, the hunger cues and actually those have been overridden. I mean, there's so many factors to that. You know, we, we lived in a country where, you know, you were told to eat everything on your plate because there were starving children in Africa. Yeah. The correlation of which I never fully understood. No, but can I post them yeah. half this sausage? <laughs> Send them money, but, you know, you finishing everything on your plate. Because children naturally, they do naturally know uh, what to eat. Now, I'm kind of laughing saying this to you because I came down after a quick shower last night to my youngest with four pack of the hula hoops on the table. <laughs> and when I ran back upstairs for another, she finished the last one. 
And I thought, what are you doing? She said, oh, they're so lovely. <laughs> but, you know, children do naturally have a sense of, and, and, and you're, you're taught from such a young age to disregard your emotional cues because, say, in a normal proper dinner, you're told to, like, finish that plate, finish everything on the plate. So there's a mentality that builds up around that. But again, that is separate to issues with when it becomes disordered eating, whereby your brain actually is very different to someone who hasn't got an issue with food. And so are those two things for our listeners, are those, because I think the 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 idea of eating disorder is something that like a lot of people will disconnect from and, and will kind of push away from. I don't have an eating disorder, but is disordered eating a different thing to having an eating disorder or is it the same thing? So, I mean, I was thinking about this beforehand and I, I thought it's, we can get technical with it in a way, but what I was hoping was that people would come away from this asking a simple question. Do I have a good relationship with myself and food? Um, and I think there is so much noise externally um, from media, but it's also genetic. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're looking at the genetic component of eating disorders and it's, it, you know, if, if you have a kind of a first case relative, your likelihood of having an eating disorder is 10% higher. And yet I still think there's a, such an aspect of shame with eating disorders as if, oh, for God's sake, just eat it. Why are you doing this? Because it creates such an issue within a family. Yes. Um, it is it is another entity in the home when there is an eating disorder or eating issues within a home. It's it's devastating for everybody. And as you said, the highest mortality rate. You know, it's 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 actually very upsetting. Which is, yeah, which is shocking. Yeah. Like when you look, can actually, can I just ask you to sort of, I guess not qualify, but talk us through the different types of eating disorders that they are, because I think a lot of us think anorexia and maybe bulimia. Mm -hmm. And outside of that, if I don't have either of those two things, I don't have an eating disorder. Yeah. I think the thing I would see more often, yes, and I think you probably would as well, is disordered eating in terms of the behavior that encapsulate restricted eating or kind of binge you know, binge disorders whereby the person's actually eating all the food, but they're not actually binging or purging. So they are actually putting weight and that same level of kind of compulsion is there with with the bulimia. Um, and I think the different, the problem is, and, and <clears throat> I know we're going to touch on this, but, you know, the funding has been cut this year again, um, which is just desperate. Um, but also, I think that people need to understand that what can happen within units when people actually manage to get in <clears throat> excuse me, is they're told they're not actually underweight enough. Oh, that's just like for someone with an eating disorder to be told you haven't achieved yes. the level that you are actually working towards probably. Yeah. Is just so damaging. Like that. I can't believe that that's happening somewhere like. It is. And. You know, the comparison that's made within that in-group then, and then they're told, well, actually, you're not as bad. Or they compare themselves and like, I actually look okay compared to that person. Because um, it's not about the body at all, is it? Like, no. the disorder, like, it is about the body in some ways when it comes to that, like, are you at a threshold where you might die and mm -hmm. where your organs start shutting down? But it's not, it's not the body that maintains the disorder because... People who suffer with eating disorders, there is no weight in which the eating disorder will go away. That's the problem. It's the deadly pursuit of thinness until death. 
used to be the definition. I'm not sure I need to check again if that is still the definition, but I that one always shook me to the core. Yeah, until death. But I think what we need to recognize is that it's not just a person deciding, do you know what, I'd be good, I think I've become an anorexic. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just don't think you wake up thinking like that. That they have noticed temperaments, say, you know, in children where there have been kind of anorexia or bulimia, um, that those kind of perfectionist anxiety kind of, you know, temperaments were there in childhood where they were quite, you know, impulsive and compulsive about specific things. Um, But it's not just like it's such a complex area. And that's why I think it's so important that we have the supports, which we don't, um, to facilitate people who are in such serious distress, physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, And And often not able to identify it as that being the problem. A hundred percent not able to identify it. Or if they are able to identify it, working very hard to keep it secret from everybody else because they don't want them to know because then they will actually intervene. That's why so much of it is hidden. So much is, there's so much shame with it, but they 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 find it so difficult. You know, it's not just easy, oh, enjoy your food. I think people find it very difficult to comprehend the anxiety that comes up for somebody, the panic, the sheer fear that they actually feel in their brain. Um, like, a, like to, if I wanted to have, say, a slice of toast today, my, my brain might go, I'm a bit hungry. I have a couple of gurgles in my stomach. I make my toast. I make it. And the part of my brain called the insula, it kind of goes, yes, there's, um, you know, hunger cues here. So then I eat the toast and then sitting alongside is my amygdala, which is your kind of your, your it'll signal off any distress or it's, it's your warning system. Okay. And I'm eating it and it's fine. And I'm like, oh, this is good. And I'm I'm taking a couple of bites and I'm enjoying it. And then we get down to a little dopamine spike because I put a bit of jam on it and it's delicious and I'm really enjoying it. And then I, I, I'm looking across at the person who's anorexic and if I don't understand, I'm finding it very difficult to comprehend why they don't see the, the joy that's in food, the social aspect of it, mm-hmm. the, the connection piece. But in the brain of the person with, with anorexia specifically, in terms of their insula, when they actually eat it, they found under functional MRIs so that they... they, they they taste it like flat. It tastes like cardboard. And their hunger cue is that they actually aren't hungry. They okay. don't actually feel hungry. Because that has been switched off by yes. by just suppression. Well, they're now wondering, is that the genetic component? You know, and that literally the, the kind of neural circuitry has been, in terms of the reward system, it's not working properly. Okay. So, so they're eating the piece of toast and then they're going, this tastes flat and I'm not even hungry. Yeah. And now the amygdala starts to spike up and goes, eh, what are you doing here? Maybe there's something wrong with the toast. Right. You know, I'm not hungry. It's tasting flat. And rather than kind of having a dopamine hit, you're actually having the fear is coming up. Okay. And the anxiety is coming up. So you think, maybe I'll just stop eating this. So for the person standing by, that you know, the mother or the father sitting by at their starving adolescent who's visibly, you know, malnourished and, and underweight and they can't take a bite of toast. Yeah. It's very hard for them to comprehend. And I think that the, the genetic component of this, it's very interesting to look at it in terms of, you know, we don't feel the same way about diabetes. I know diabetes is, is the one, you know, <laughs> disease yeah, we always no use, but there's no shame in it, you know. Yeah. And in terms of kind of recognizing the noise in the person's brain, um, it's immense. So eating food brings up this noise and, and kind of these distressing thoughts that are so 
all encompassing. Yeah, they're so they can be so intrusive. Yeah, and I've spoken to a friend of mine who, um, she she didn't identify as having an eating disorder at all. She was really like into the gym. She was big into CrossFit, and she would just start referencing the fact that she was eating clean, just eating clean, mm-hmm. which, you know. That's a thing on Instagram. It's a thing on in the world. Like it's it's something that often people are praised for. So she wouldn't eat sugar. I at the time had also totally quit sugar from my diet, which is a really restrictive behavior, which I don't do anymore. But anyway, um, so quit sugar. Or she wasn't. She just would eat whole foods that seemed really like she just seemed to glow about it. You know, like she mm. had this. She was so proud of this, and she was on the pill at the time. And she came off the pill, she was married and she decided that she was going to try and get pregnant and her period had stopped and she hadn't noticed because she'd been on the pill. So she was trying, her period had just stopped. So she saw this endocrinologist and the endocrinologist had told her that basically she had no, she was underweight Mm -hmm. and it was all being masked because she looked great. She had her muscle, she was going to the gym, she was eating a really healthy diet, but her brain had been like, no, we're in famine. We're not going to promote, we're not going to produce any estrogen. We're going to stop all your cycles because you're barely alive. So you definitely can't sustain another life inside you. And she had to kind of change her relationship with food and gain weight to get her period back. But I think trying to differentiate that like eating clean, even though it's something that people are like, even in January, you might be listening to this being like, yeah, I'm trying to eat clean and like Obviously, cutting certain toxins from your diet is not a bad idea, but that this notion of clean eating or restrictive eating is being promoted to us or seen as a good thing can actually have huge effects and is, in effect, an eating disorder or at least a way to hide Mm -hmm. a disordered pattern of eating. And it is disordered. And when you were saying at the offset, if people kind of got turned off by... I don't have an I don't have anorexia. I'm not bulimic. None of those things relate to me. Yes. But what I see more is the disordered eating with overexercising. Yeah. And I, I kind of like as clean eating as opposed to what? Yeah. Like dirty eating. <laughs> but all that classification of good foods or mm. bad foods, I'll have a treat. Oh, I'm bad today. I have a major problem with that. Yeah. You know, and I mean I suppose I am differentiating between, you know, such serious complex mental genetic you know issues such as anorexia and somebody who would never identify with that but are actually damaging their bodies i i have a, such an issue with the whole diet culture that it's it's so easy just to be swept up in it because as you said if someone looks good and there is the inherent problem we value how someone looks yeah but we don't actually know what inside their body looks like Exactly. And health and, and BMI is still used by doctors and it's a pretty like it's a pretty flawed way mm. of, of, of of kind of measuring health. But that health at every size exists and how healthy you are is kind of no way correlated to the size of your or shape of your body. Because no. I know people who are who, you know, once they put on their clothes in the morning and walk outside, look absolutely healthy. They even have bodies that people would aspire to and they are, you know, their bodies are shutting down. They're not menstruating as women. They're not able to sustain a life. They're not, they're miserable. And that is something that people think is valuable because society has told us it is because of models. I don't know why, but 
It's so pervasive, Alison. It's so pervasive. And like I do have problems with things where you're counting everything that you eat and it's the good and the bad. Yeah. You know, and, and I think eating is possible. In my, in my opinion, I think psychologically eating is one of the most difficult things to change. Definitely. And I also think this, it really makes people feel like failures when ridiculous kind of claims are made that you can lose this in, the, you know, like seven days and, you know, seven pounds. I, I don't know, whatever. It's all so wrong. Um, where is the value? And I suppose I'm, I'm a mom of three girls, so I'm very conscious of the language that I use around, you know, food and exercise. And I mean, even my, my nine-year-old yesterday <clears throat> pulled up her top and said, oh, belly's fat. Fat. Isn't How do you respond to that, like as a mother? I said to her, I don't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. I said, your body is beautiful. I said, you are not just a stomach. Yeah. And I said, your stomach's beautiful anyway, but that's regardless. I said, but you have a beautiful brain. You write great you know, poems. She does. She's an amazing dancer. I said, you're strong. You have balance. You, you change every day. I'm so into the concept of... I'm being specific now because these are my children, that they're girls, but that we see our bodies as something incredible, that we can hug people, you know, in in our family. Do you know what I mean? Sorry, I don't mean that. But, uh, you know, what your body can actually do, we can kind of support each other and love each other and give love. Does anyone ever actually ever talk about that? It's like how your body looks. It's so restrictive and it's so minimal in terms of like, do you have an amazing sense of humor? Are you able to see, to hear? I think our bodies are amazing. You have a beautiful brain. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm listening to you here, but there's definitely a part of me that's like, yeah, listen, but like, that's not the world. And I know there are going to be people listening who are like, yes, I really want to believe in what you're saying. I want the whole world to believe in what you're saying. But because they don't, I still have to be aware of how I look and I still have to change how I look. Do you know what I mean? Like if everyone could change, if the value system fundamentally could change and no one really cared about what we look like, that that would be a great thing. But the world isn't like that. And as someone who has lost an incredible amount of weight, like I used to be very overweight, I lost weight. I have been both heavier and lighter than I currently am. I know how shallow the world is. And I know I now have like learned body knowledge of the reactions I get, the opportunities available to mm-hmm. me, how people treat me in different body sizes. And it it is a it's something that I can't unknow. I totally agree with you. Like one hundred percent. But I still think we can fundamentally get in there with a like a chisel. I, I want to come with a sledgehammer. You I know. know, I'm so sick of our value system being just about how we look. It's so restrictive. And I just think it's just to kind of get in here with my little sledgehammer <laughs> and just disrupt the whole area because it's it's a place to start. Even if I throw a little seed of doubt in. Now, I'm not saying don't, it's like saying don't care about what people think about you. That's rubbish. Okay. Yeah. Everybody cares what people think about them because fundamentally we're built to care. We're built to belong. We're built to, you know, rejection hurts. Mm-hmm. And my God, do people make comments on people's bodies? Absolutely. Do you learn kind of very, very clearly what's acceptable and what's not within your family, within society? And I mean, it's a really tricky one, but I do actually say to people, don't say to someone if they've lost weight, oh, you look yeah. amazing. Congratulations. Because, yeah. you know, when you look to someone, say specifically with anorexia and they go back to kind of refeeding, you know, 
the old kind of concept was, look, look, just eat this and you will feel better. But that's not actually true. The person's going to feel horrific. You know, their, their brain is in such a level of distress, you know, acute distress, that it's incredibly difficult for people to understand that when they're supposedly getting better, the pain is all-encompassing for them. And I know what you're saying, Stephanie, and I totally and utterly agree with you. People do treat people differently based upon their outward experience, uh, like uh, appearance. But it's not, it's not okay. How can you improve your home's energy rating? 180 Degrees is a podcast answering these questions by sharing the stories of people across Ireland working towards a cleaner energy future. They chat to people who are making a real difference in the areas of sustainable transport, energy in the home and in our communities. They hear how businesses and public sector bodies are cutting carbon emissions and how energy research is informing policy decisions. 180 Degrees is brought to you by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, supported by the Government of Ireland. You can listen to 180 Degrees, the podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. I want to talk to you about another podcast on our network, which is called Sissy That Pod. If you like RuPaul's Drag Race, you're not going to need me to do any more explaining. But if you don't know it and you are interested in watching it, RuPaul's Drag Race is a drag show. It's on Netflix. It's everywhere. RuPaul is a queen. And Sissy That Pod, watch the episodes and review them, pull them apart, pick the legs off them. It's very entertaining. James and Kean are hilarious and know, seem to know an awful lot about drag. Um, in a way that is fun and insightful. So if you like RuPaul's Drag Race, you're going to love this podcast. Check it out. Come on, sissy that pod. Let's get thickening. Are you a fan of the Emmy Award winning show RuPaul's Drag Race? Do you think about Roxy Andrews at the bus stop? And do you belong in Party City? Well, sissy that pod is the podcast for you. Join me, James, and my co-host, Keen. Is there something on my face? As we chat weekly about the runway realness, sickening shade, and backstage buffoonery. That's right. Whether it's new episodes of Drag Race US, UK, or All Stars, Sissy That Pod will spill the tea with a new episode for you within 24 hours. So make good choices and subscribe to Sissy That Pod from the Headstuff Podcast Network, and we'll leave you gagging on our eleganza. Now let the music play. So how can we do the work like you know safe from <laughs> if we could get everyone to listen and everyone to change their minds in the world at the same time that would be great that's not going to happen so how is it that we can I guess if the house of cards that maintains diet culture is a house of cards mm-hmm. what are the things that the house of cards is made up of that we can chip away at to stop ourselves being part of that culture like how can we change our value systems so that we allow ourselves to accept our body the way that it is I guess it means looking not being so judgmental of other bodies but Mm. like you'd want to be like living under a rock (laughs) you know it's really hard to not buy into that diet culture it's really hard not to I mean you can never forget how many calories are in a hard-boiled egg if that's something that you once tracked? Do you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) everyone here listening who has ever been on any sort of a diet knows that and you can't unlearn it. Yeah. 
I don't think it's about unlearning. I don't think it's about ignoring. And I love your choice of word of acceptance because that's what it actually is. But everybody misunderstands acceptance as a kind of a, okay, that's fine, move on. Yeah. No, it doesn't no, work that okay. way. Acceptance is is painful. It really is. <laughs> it's really painful. And you're accepting that you, say, have been triggered by seeing somebody looking well online or in real life. And to be quite honest, for most of us, it's going to be online yes, for okay. the next while. So be aware of the diet you consume online, visually. Okay. So be aware of the people you follow yep. and the... Yeah, that's really hard, isn't it? Like, it is, it is. But to be honest, it's you've got to actually think of, let's bring it back to your mental health. Mm-hmm. And I'm really fascinated by the concept that there will be so many people listening who will have never questioned before. What their relationship with food is. Yes. I mean, if you think about it, you're born. The first thing they do to comfort you is you get fed. Yeah. But also, like, you'll die if you don't do it. You will die if you don't do it. And, you know, the physical ramifications are, they're unbelievable. I mean, we're, we're talking, I do, I do remember once listing them out to someone because I had to. You know, I had to actually bring it to the point of, do you realize the amount of people who die from heart failure? Do you realize it's going to affect your skin? And in a way, and it sounds shallow, but it's not, but it, it's it's kind of a way in sometimes to say it's going to create premature wrinkling. It's going to create problems with your hair. It's going to create problems with fertility. It's going to cause problems. Well, you know, it's mm-hmm. going to cause problems with, you know, kidneys. You can have complete organ failure. And for someone, sometimes, in fairness, they're so steadfast on lose, lose, lose weight that they don't actually recognize. They don't know what they're doing internally either. And especially if that kind of, you know, their hunger is, is it's switched off and the delusion is switched up in terms of looking in the mirror and seeing themselves as fat. As I said, my first job was with, you know, very high level trauma. One other time I remember in my career where I I had someone who literally was about to go onto death's door and the weight was unbelievable. And my mouth hit the floor when I saw the person. They still said to me, I think I'm fat. Yeah. Still that that haunts me. That dysmorphia. That's frightening that your brain can can lead you to believe like that you can't trust what you see in the mirror. Exactly. That's very hard. Like that's incredibly hard. And in terms of kind of the diabetes that your insulin is your medicine, then it's to consider how your food then becomes your medicine, say, with specifically, say, anorexia, that you begin to kind of allow some level of control back in. Because I think that's the problem is that when people try to eat normally again, it's just impossible for them. Going to a restaurant is a disaster. You know, all these kind of social family situations create such fear. So to allow the person to kind of see that the, the food is the medicine. Yes. I don't really like it. I don't like the side effects. And, you know, the funny part is that when the person gets back to the level of of weight that's healthy, it's still very difficult for the person because they then think and see themselves so differently. And it says not trusting your own brain is an incredibly difficult thing to actually look in the mirror. I mean, we all know the images of the very emaciated, you know, girl or boy looking in the mirror and they see themselves as huge. But that's true. As the person eats the food, they kind of imagine the food becoming them. They feel themselves growing bigger and bigger. So, yeah, I'm I'm not being flippant about bringing back the concept of our bodies being more than just about physical, physical appearance. And I think it's important to feel good in yourself. Mm-hmm. But from a health point of view, 
Yes. And I, I think that is the key because the flip side of that is then to say like, well, I'm just going to eat whatever I want. I don't care what I look like. This is all, you know, but. But that's not, to, that's not good either. Exactly. Do you know, people, so people to, still feel dreadful. To come back to the cues and to accept that you can change the shape of your body by what you eat, eat more, eat less that is in your control, but that the reason that you're doing it is not because you feel like you are going to be more valuable mm. or 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 more lovable or more popular, even though those things might be side effects, that that is not the root cause of why you were doing it. Yeah. And when you said at the beginning in terms of, you know, how to be the parent to yourself, I think that was just so important about knowing how to nurture yourself but that that isn't as simplistic with eating disorders it just isn't do you know and they and seem to be really like from listening to you and and our previous podcast they they seem to be more tricky than just diagnosing someone with like just treating someone with anxiety or depression it's a really because you know for example with me i don't drink alcohol and that's a really simple thing not to do because i just don't drink alcohol mm-hmm. but if someone has an eating disorder they they have to eat. Mm. So it's not about, and if they're afraid of all, it's not like you can just cut, you can cut alcohol from your diet, you can still drink liquid. But food for someone who has difficulty with food is going to be an issue three times a day. Yes. Maybe five if they have to have snacks. I don't know. Mm. Um, it just seems like a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a very involved and very, exhausting Mm. recovery process for someone. I think it's incredibly distressing. So maybe that's where in terms of seeing food as medicine, not that you have to like it, but that you're taking it like you're nearly prescribing yourself food, you know, or that you are, you know, making up the amounts with your dietitian. This is where it is a complex issue and it cannot just be sorted by yourself. You need a team. And so if you are listening to this and if someone is listening to this and they're like, actually, I'm identifying a lot with what Alison says. I do have strange behaviours around food. I am obsessed. I can't stop thinking about mm. food, restricting food, cutting things from my diet, trying new things all the time to, you know, to try and control food. What is the first place to start? Like, do you start by calling a therapist or would you talk to your GP or? I would start with your GP. Yeah. See what they say. Even if it's mild. Or what would you qualify as? Because people are going to be trying to justify their way out of this Mm. if if they do, you know. Like if you're just doing one of the weekly diets where you go to a weekly weigh-in, is that an issue? Look, people will disagree with me, but I just, I don't believe in in weighing yourself. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I do to a point of if you want to do it once a week, once a month, but this kind of obsessional, you know, how will my day go depending on what scale says? Um, and again, it's not a good indicator. I mean, like muscle does weigh more than fat, you know, mm-hmm. so you could be training and kind of putting on weight and think, oh, my God, I'm doing this all wrong. Um, you just have to think about how it's impacting your life. How how much of your time is preoccupied with food, with food, with thinking about it, with planning about it? Um, ask yourself, is it kind of do a rate on a scale of mild to moderate to acute? And on the eating disorders kind of scale, it's it's the acute ones where, yeah, I would go, I'm not saying go, early intervention is very important. Okay. 
er, the earlier the better, because basically what we're trying to do is save someone. These you know kind of behaviors start to manifest when they're in their adolescence. The earlier you can get in there and kind of retrain the brain circuitry to to eat food and see it as medicine, as their medicine for a while, it, it can help kind of bring down that noise. Because mm-hmm. I think the noise is a really important aspect of this. How much noise in your brain goes into thinking about what you're going to eat, when you're going to eat, or how you're not going to eat, or all the planning around it. It's the preoccupation aspect um, in terms of it kind of consuming all of your life. So... Yeah, I would think talking to your GP and yeah, then seeing a therapist. But depending on the level, depending on the level, like it does require that kind of multidisciplinary team effect. It does require a psychiatrist. Um, In severe cases. It does. Yeah. You know, that's why the community aspect of this, which which is where it's, it's so sad that funds have been cut, is so, so important because it's not something that you can just get over yourself. Do you know? Uh, you do need support and sustained support and specifically because of the morbidity and and, and, and it's, it's kind of the other comorbidity factors as well. It does have anxiety. It does bring depression. There can be alcohol um, issues and, and substance abuse issues to, 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 to deal with the levels of distress. And why does it, like just coming back to your saying that you, you kind of have an experience your expertise or your specialist is is in trauma. Like, why do eating disorders happen? Like, is the eating disorder the trauma or is it a result of something? Or is that going to be different case to case? Like, it, it, do you deal with people who have eating disorders and treat that like they're traumatised by the eating disorder or that this developed because of some kind of trauma? It can, it can depend, right, do you know? Okay. But I do think... I think it is very interesting to look at it from not just let's blame social media, let's blame our over preoccupation with people's value inherent in how they look and their body. That's all part of it. That's why it's complex. Okay. But I think the genetic aspect is huge. And that's something that they're just researching now. I don't really know anything. They're looking into it. And I think it's really interesting. And I I hope what it it, it can do is to give people an understanding because it's very difficult, like a lot of mental health disorders. It doesn't make sense to the person who's functioning okay. Yeah. It doesn't make sense that someone's starving themselves to death or they're they're going down and that kind of huge impulsive need to binge and purge or binge and not purge. I mean... I think we really have to come at this from a place of recognizing that there is a whole cohort of people that's increasing all the time who are in acute distress, who need proper help. And you can't do it on your own. And it's not just for private practice. It requires that team. Do you yes, know? Yeah. And and for us to give ourselves a bit of a kick up the backside about this crazy idea of clean eating or, you know, crash dieting because our bodies don't work like that. And that's what I mean when I bring it back to the body all the time. You know, our bodies are actually amazing. Yeah. But we don't really give much. Like, I'm not being airy-fairy about it. Our bodies are actually amazing. But we don't seem to put any value on that. And unfortunately, we don't until our health goes. But is it because we don't, like, it's hard to, well, I don't know. 
sometimes when people talk about how amazing their bodies are and I follow a lot of kind of body positive accounts on Instagram and you know they say like oh you know today my body I'm grateful for my body it allows me to walk to the shop Mm -hmm. I'm able to hug my child I can stretch and I can reach for things and those are things where you know, if 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 for some reason you are in a cast or you're you are on crutches, you're really grateful for all the you're sad for all the times you didn't appreciate your functioning legs. But on most days, it's like yeah, well, look, most people can. That just seems to be a very low bar to, to be <laughs> grateful for. It's like I want to be, you know, uh, I, I want to rise above what is like this very low bar where most people's arms can move and most people can hug their, you know, mm-hmm. and that if I can lift 35 kg kettlebell 60 times, three, you know, that 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 how somehow makes me better than than the rest of the people or that I am more valuable or I am safer in the world if I can lift all those things. Mm. Is that what sustains the issue then? I, I think what needs to sustain it is that say somebody, you know, and they're in an acute phase of, of um, an eating disorder or disordered eating, what happens is they are getting all <clears throat> their self-worth from their body weight. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a healthy way, people are able to bring in other aspects of their lives. Actually, I, you know, I do a good job at my job. I am a good friend. I did this last week and it was you're able to pull out other areas and other aspects of yourself that isn't just about weight. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's where we pull it in. You know. It's difficult, isn't it? To like, I don't know, I feel I'm very cynical and I said this uh, in, in, in a podcast a little while ago just that I, I've had a recent experience that makes me sort of cynical about therapy in general. <laughs> um, but when people, like when people talk about being compassionate and self-care, I have to admit that a little part of me rolls my eyes. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's fine for other people. But like, I am, I'm ambitious and eager. And I, I like while other people are having their baths, I can get ahead. And, and and it would be disingenuous for me to to not acknowledge that part of myself. But when people talk about like being compassionate towards myself and identifying all the great things that I am, I'm just like, oh, for God's sake. Like, okay, fine. I'm great. But like. This- I, I love the impatience. <laughs> It's like, fine, shut up. Yeah, shut up. Like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't know what value comes from. I've stopped to do it. Just shut up. (laughs) I don't know what value comes from me accepting that I am a good friend and and then, you know, a loyal colleague. And I know those are valuable things, but like, they're not what my brain is wired to value within myself. And I don't know how to rewire that. Okay. And not that I'm saying this is a private therapy session for Stephanie, but it's for the listener as well. I totally hear you. Um, like, do you ever roll your eyes at that? Or do you really genuinely have body knowledge and appreciation for like those little things in yourself? Because I would love to get to that. But not all the time. Okay. Like, and, and why should you? Mm-hmm. You know, I think this is the problem. We're being too black and white about it. You know, you're not going to wake up every day and say, ah, I'm wonderful. I know. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm definitely not into that. You know, and the, the kind of the, the phrases on the mirror, I am so great, let's beat little band no um, but I think you have to uh, in terms of how your brain works you got to fight hard against the negativity as that's there right, right okay. so 100% I'm sure you know it, like we got to do five positives for every one negative that is bloody hard mm-hmm. it's really hard because your brain is primed to notice the, the negative. negative now 
cynicism, I think, is a whole other thing. And I think it's really interesting because, and I'm not, this is not, you know, but that is when you're just, you're weary. Yeah. You're weary. And, 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 and the eye roll is so natural because it's like, oh, God, here we go again. Like, shut up. That's not how it is for me. Yes. And I totally get that. Um, and it doesn't connect you. So I think if it goes too far, we're all kind of, you know, hugging trees and, and dancing in the meadow. Yeah. Um, you switch off because you're, if you're over here and your head is wrecked and the noise is just pummeling every thought that you're having and it's impossible to focus, I think it's another thing that you feel like you're failing at. Exactly. <laughs> and I think this sort of like... There is a move towards like positive vibes only. Like oh, you God, can no. only have positivity. And it makes me feel like my negative thoughts, which are so frequently there. And that negative, cynical part of me is a part of me that I know well and she's always in the room. That that makes that part of me seem like it's wrong, like it's pathologized, like there's something wrong with me and I have to hide it. And then I feel like, there's no point in engaging with the positive vibes people because they don't understand me because I do have negative thoughts. And, you know, body so positivity, does everybody. body positivity is, it, it, it's somehow even more stultifying than than body negativity. I would love to get to a point where body neutrality Absolutely. was a thing. Yeah. Like I ju- it's just my body. That's yeah. all it is. It's, it's a little part of myself. I also have my mind and I have all these other parts. Mm-hmm. But body positivity is an effort. Some days so much that I'm like, oh, go away, Instagram. I can't be dealing with you. Absolutely. And I, I, that's maybe if we're thinking of kind of eating and your relationship with it, it is that polar opposites that's the problem. Yeah. I don't think we need to be jumping up and down <laughs> saying my body is beautiful. And I also think the self-loathing, fear and loathing in Las Vegas is not where we want to be either. Yes. I totally love neutral. Neutral's the best. Yeah. Okay. And then like if we if we kind of are are aware that we're in neutral and then we move one. So say we need to move one in, towards a kind of a, a warmer thought towards yourself. Yeah. What one thing would that be? And to be honest, like maybe a brain dump. So you get a piece of paper and you write down your negative thoughts. I would be bringing in cynical, you know, Stephanie, and I'd be like, sit down there now. <laughs> Pull up a chair. Yeah. And I'd be interested into... Uh, how she served you. Because as you said, in terms of the ambition, it's like it gets things done. So I can see how it would be very hard to think, ooh, if I do this now, I'm just sitting back and I'm, you know, hmm, I'm not going to get anything done. And and that's going to pull against you. But how could you get it to work in a, it's just, it's it's how to be softer with yourself. And again, that parent word that you used, I think it would be nice to kind of create a, a nurturing relationship with yourself. Do you know what I mean? And that isn't kind of that sick feeling of, you know, overly positive because I am really not into that because I think it's massively damaging. Yeah. Like we're not put on this earth to be happy. And that sounds really bad. My my main area of interest is positive psychology, but that encapsulates all the emotions. Yeah. You know, so I would invite in cynical Stephanie yeah. <laughs> and do a podcast with her. Yeah. Well, no, she does. She does serve me. And she also protects me from being... Uh, like too gullible or too naive like she protects me from being hurt from like leading someone down the garden path who's telling me oh everything's going to be wonderful the cynical Mm. part of me is like Stephanie it's not going to be wonderful don't go down that path that stranger (laughs) you're going to get hurt at the end of that path so there are there are reasons for her and she has served me in the past but there are definitely times where she gets in the way of me sort of just 
um, you know, softening into there you go, yeah, the, yeah, softening into being like, look, isn't the world wonderful? Like, look at the look well. at the beauty of that tree. <laughs> Some of you like, all right, Stephanie, it's a tree. Get over yourself. I think it's also really hard at the moment. Um, I think it's really, really difficult to um, uh, not even hard. I think it's not possible to be like everything is great because it's it's not. Yeah. Um, and that's where the acceptance piece is actually crucial. Um, and in terms of, say, compassion focused therapy, which I really do advocate. But honestly, it is a softening. It's just a checking in with that inner critic and going, God, I really am being a bitch to myself. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and, and it is the simple thing of would I actually say that to anybody else, like a random stranger, never mind myself. It's that when you have to kind of pull back, oh, this is really protecting me to recognizing actually I'm avoiding hurt and pain. So the acceptance piece is how do you actually feel the pain, mm-hmm. process it, and then let it go. That is bloody hard work. So that's the work. That's the work. And so for people listening, before we finish up, who are now in lockdown, uh, it's getting very difficult. I know a lot of people in the first lockdown and the second, you know, their relationship with food changed. Or certainly I know that a friend of mine who uh, her her kind of... Um, the thing that she used to cope with the world in general was the gym. And she would go there. She didn't kind of realise, but like that was her daily thing. Gym was gone. The workouts from home lasted for a while, but then they didn't. And then she realised that it was like, there was kind of nothing else and it was banana bread and Mm. it was all the things. And her relationship with her body and food has changed. Um, Now she's kind of gone into running in a big way, which I think is kind of just a, she's just overcompensating, but that's just me judging someone else. Um, How... Would you advise people who are listening to this who realize that like food might be something that is an issue, but not to the extent that they feel like they need to to like contact their GP, like looking into this new lockdown and the lens of this, these weeks of, you know, being in your kitchen. Is there anything they can do to be careful in that? Mm. Stop seeing the fridge as this big monster, do you know? Okay. Um, and I think it's, again, the, the, the two ends, that people were over-exercising or they were kind of Netflix and, and yeah. binge, like, you know. So is there somewhere in between? Do you know, like, what is healthy? What are you aspiring towards? Um, I would get pretty basic and, like, as you said, three meals, three snacks a day. Yeah. Um, maybe make a bit of a plan purely because... It can help, you know, like if you have to do your online shop and to kind of really start tuning into, well, what do I actually like? What do I like? What do I need? And then to recognize, is there emotional hunger here? Am I actually hungry? If you are hungry, eat. Yeah. Or is there a void in there? What is the real feeling? Um, You know, in terms of feeling out of control, feeling anxious, you know, I would come at it a completely different way and say, what's actually going on here? What is this ugh, feeling in my stomach? And actually, I'm bored. I'm frustrated. Um, I'm tired. I've been fighting with my partner. I'm just tired of being a homeschool teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and again, it's I would carry in the drink to that because that's in the kitchen, you know. Yeah. And just to kind of question, get out a piece of paper and say, like, what what would be a healthy me? Like, and to be... 
And try and not have that be a number on a scale oh God, or yeah. something that you've seen online. Exactly. You know, it's just what what is it for you? What what would make a difference? And I, I do think the narrative through the different lockdowns, again, was very much like the banana bread, the sourdough, la la, la yeah. you know. Then it was like people got on about the Corona Stone. I just really despise that because in the background, those words, that fear, that fat shaming is impacting people in terms of either starving, restricting themselves, binging, you know, those words and those narratives are having an impact. So that's the acceptance piece. Where am I at? What is the pain and the hurt that's actually going on here? Um, do I actually need help with this? Yeah. And if you do, go and get it. Yeah. So for any of you listening who feel like you might have identified with that, or if you feel like you are hungry and it is not for food and you can't identify what it is for, then yeah, get help. And if it's severe, start with your GP. And mm. if not, may, would you recommend doing some online research or going privately? I know it's not ideal that people have to go privately because the resources are so underfunded. Mm. But what would you be looking like? Do people do therapists say that they specify or that they some? Uh, yes, there are like eating disorders. You know that that's their speciality. So you know, yeah, do look online. I know it's very difficult for people because they mightn't actually have, you know, the money to to access it. But you know. I suppose that the GP is just the primary care. It's the starting point. Yes, um, and then and they will guide who you. do you need in, in that circle? Do you need a dietitian? Do you need a psychologist? Do you need a psychiatrist? And that sounds like a lot of people, but it isn't really because we're dealing with an issue that is physical, mental, emotional, and that everybody has their job and their place and people need to be supported. Um, and that's easier said than done because I said the person has to be at the point. That they're ready. Yeah. And if, look, if you're not genuine and you're going to puke but be compassionate to that do you know what I mean like I, I do think you you know people say oh god I don't know why I didn't do therapy years ago and the truth is they weren't actually ready. ready just try and hear what people are saying people don't believe when they're saying my god you're so thin you look all they're, they're like yes yeah go so be just everyone be mindful of their language around food this lockdown please I think that is a great, uh, that if you take one thing away from it, please be aware of the language you use to yourself and to other people and online and in real life. Um, Alison, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I will put some information about Alison and where you can reach her in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Basically. Um, I do really appreciate you listening to the podcast. It's makes it all worthwhile, particularly when you get in touch and when you share or if you could make the effort to go and like it or subscribe to it on iTunes or Spotify, that really does make a difference. Um, or there is now a new option in how you can support me. Uh, you can go to headstuffpodcast.com and become part of our community, which means that for five euro a month or however much you want to give, you can become part of the Headstuff community and get extra bonus content and support. You pick basically any of the podcasts on our network and you can support my podcast 100% or you can split it 50-50 with another podcast and then we would get half of your subscription money or you could go and pick three and then we get 33% each and it's a great way to get bonus content obviously to get to know the podcasters more and to become a more intimate member of the community um, I would really appreciate if you could do that so if that's not something that you're able to do right now just share share the podcast with someone send it to someone you think will find it interesting or let me know how you found it on Instagram as ever our graphic design is by Kahlo Gara and our music is by Only Ruin and we are 
part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. And we film at the podcast studios. Uh, you don't really need to know where that is, but it's in Dublin. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.